0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and while you're at it, sign up for our free newsletter. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series on how this thing called the rule of law silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing about it. Our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story.
1: My dad was an electrician, worked at the mills, and his car kind of always smelled like the mills, you know, because it sits down there for eight hours a day. And I was like, man, I don't want to do that. I want to work out in the woods. I want to be a game warden, and a biologist
2: or something. Something, anything else, this native of Longview, Washington, named Mike Bridges, was convinced.
1: But... I listened to my dad, I'm glad I did. He told me when I was 18, he said, hey, applications are open for this apprenticeship program. I'm not saying you have to do it, but just do me a favor and go take the test, see if you qualify, see where you rank. So I went through the process and I made it. When I got the interview, I was going to the local community college there and I only had a couple classes left to take to get my associate's degree. And the committee asked me when I could go to work. I gave what I thought was the right answer, an honest answer, and I said, well, I'd like to finish things I start, and I'm in the middle of a quarter right now at college, so I guess when I get this quarter done, I could I could start right after that. And unfortunately, that wasn't what they were, the answer they were looking to hear, and I got passed over, missed an opportunity. Work wasn't really busy then, so it took me three more interviews. I kept going back and trying to better my interview, and I got in on my fourth try, <laughs> so... I'm glad I did because I was able to work in different small businesses. I worked in cabinet business, a small cabinet shop where I did everything from cutting out the material to assembling it to installing cabinets in people's homes and businesses. And so I really, I don't know if I would have appreciated where I ended up as much working in the building trades as an electrician with the benefits and things that we have is if I would have got in right away. I'm a little bummed that I didn't get it right away because I'd have more money in my retirement now and other things maybe be closer to retirement, but looking back on it, I don't think I would have appreciated as much not working for some some of the different employers I worked for that didn't have the same type of benefits that I have now. It's pretty amazing to go from living with your parents having a, maybe a, you know, a car and being a young man and thinking, okay, I can do this. I could probably move out and someday. And then all of a sudden getting into a real legitimate program like that. And I think within a year of being in the apprenticeship, I had a newer car, more reliable car, bought my first house, got married, and all those things that started happening because of my career path. So I always just volunteered to help out my union, whatever it was, just because I wanted to give back, because I just felt like what a great opportunity that I'd been given to get into the program, and this is the group that's fighting in my best interest to make work opportunities for me, and I just thought, you know, this is where I need to be. People started just seeing that I was paying attention, and maybe that I cared not just about what was going on in my life, that I, you know, I cared about the union and the people in our union and so I'm guessing that's what it was because people just started asking me would you be interested in running for this board or would you be interested in being president so it's kind of a combination of of things I guess and it wasn't much (laughs) I mean I don't think it was much I just think that sometimes it's just things happen and you get opportunities and you can either embrace them or or not
2: Mike was elected president of the Longview Kelso area building trades IBEW Local 48. I want those apprenticeship opportunities
1: for my kids and their kids and everybody's kids in our area because they're they're great opportunities. Where else can you earn a good living while you're going to school and not have any debt when you're done? I mean it's just I'm so thankful for that every day. I have friends that are my age, friends that are younger than me, older than me, that have so much student debt that it's in the 250 range, 250,000 range. It's some cases more than their mortgage, <laughs> more than my mortgage. I'm just, it's just shocking to me that what young people these days are strapped to as far as having to go to college. And so, anytime we can create more of these opportunities in, in apprenticeships or things we can do that maybe don't require a four-year degree or maybe a two-year certificate, get them into a facility where they can make a family wage job. These are truly $100,000 a year jobs, careers, if you work year-round. And if you like overtime and you like working 12-hour days or working Saturdays and Sundays, if, if they're available, I know guys that make $150,000 work in those kind of hours. The whole country seems to be talking about apprenticeships right now so the timing is right they realize that we went too far the other way telling every high school student that the only way that they can have a career is if they get a four-year degree we don't speak against going to college i think that's great we have a lot of people that get into our program that went to college and got a four-year degree and they can't find a job and they end up in our programs and they do great and they end up being part of our system so I just think that it's kind of a wrong message to tell all of our youth that there's only one career path. I was just at one of my um, kids' conferences this week. And at the conference, they asked my daughter where she was going to go to college. And it was interesting. Some of the teachers were more pushy than others. It didn't seem like they were hearing that message that there's other options out there.
0: And when we come back, more of an electrician and accidental union leader named Mike Bridges. His story continues here on Our American Stories.
2: Hear more stories like this? Follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter, so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of our American stories after the break.
0: our American stories and we continue with the story of electrician and accidental union leader Mike Bridges and his story. Let's pick up where we last left off.
1: We are working with the school districts and they're actually reaching out to us like how can we partner with you guys. They're trying to figure out how do we do this apprenticeship thing and it's easy for us to talk about because the building trades have been doing apprenticeships for over 100 years so uh, it's a second nature to us. We actually started a a pre-apprenticeship partnership program with Longview School District this year to get these folks, as they get done with high school, they're gonna end up with a recognized state credential where they can hand that to our apprenticeship program and if not get them direct entry, get them certainly a quicker pathway into our programs. But to do that, to make that happen, especially to get the folks from the local communities working on local projects where they're not having to travel three or four hours, we need these opportunities to be local. So that's kind of the missing piece that's been missing for a while. The old Reynolds uh, aluminum smelter site, that site used to have, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,000 employees. So when, when Reynolds shut down, that was a really big hit to our community. I think having a job and something to focus on, is it's a, it's a sense of pride. And I know the few times that I've been laid off in the trade, you go through that couple weeks of like, Okay, I'm, I'm off. I have, I, got, I can catch up on some stuff around the house. And you do that, and then it's like, it's I don't want to say depression, but it seems kind of like that. You know, you want it. Most of us want to be doing something. We want to be able to measure what we've accomplished during the day, and that's what kind of drives I think most people. But once those opportunities aren't there, and you're tried, and you keep getting kicked back, and I think everybody has their limits, and some people turn to substance abuse or other things to help them deal with the, the lack of opportunities, and we see that on a daily basis in our community and it's it's sad. I've seen it change in my lifetime and you know there's always been that element but I've seen it got worse and it's directly tied to in my opinion the, the numbers don't lie when you look at the graphs of the decline in these factories shutting down or, or laying off folks so we're just waiting for our our turn i guess for things to boom
2: the thing is longview just doesn't have to wait to see if anything happens to them there's an employer named lighthouse resources that really wants to come to them their millennium bulk terminal project hopes to improve one of longview's ports so they would be able to ship coal from the states of wyoming and montana to countries across the pacific ocean that are hungry for it like japan and south korea
1: You're talking almost a three-year project, probably between 1,000 and 2,000 building trades jobs easily. There's 150 permanent jobs for the facility. You know, you're probably looking at a $1 billion project, and that's a big private investment into a community that could really benefit from that.
2: Mike said could because the project is being held up by the state government because it has to do with coal what some call a dirty energy source because when it's burned to make electricity it emits carbon dioxide and that can increase global warming
1: the governor's office shouldn't be picking winners and losers based on what the commodity is that they'd like to ship or the industry that they want to bring to our community the plan all along obviously was to stall this thing out
2: Lighthouse Resources applied for its permits back in February of 2012. It took Washington State's Department of Ecology five whole years to complete its EIS, Environmental Impact Statement, on the project.
1: They're supposed to follow a process and have an answer at the end, and that's all we've ever asked for with Millennium. Um, in any project that comes to our area, you know, let's have a fair, predictable process.
2: When you're waiting one year, then two years, then three years, and four years, and finally over five years, just for the government to get back to you, to tell you what they're ruling, their law is about something. You don't have a rule of law, you have a rule of the unknown. And none of us like swimming in unknown waters when it comes to the government. Especially when you're a business that's already risking a billion dollars on a project. More risk is the last thing
1: you need. I know there's other businesses and projects that are sitting out waiting to see how this thing plays out. We're going to continue to see these projects. One of the things we worry about is, depending on how these things shake out, will that slow down? Will they quit looking at the West Coast? that's some of the fears that that we have
2: in april of 2017 the department of ecology's much delayed report came out and it essentially concluded that the project was fine but five more months later maya bellin the head of the department of ecology decided to deny their water quality permit anyway illegally She accounted for the environmental impact of the trains that would bring the coal to the port, even though federal law prohibits them from looking at trains, and she accounted for the carbon emissions of the coal, even though the federal Clean Water Act prohibits them from considering this too, and even though her own department's report found that this Wyoming and Montana coal is cleaner than those of the other countries that Japan and South Korea is currently buying them from. And therefore, this coal would actually help the environment. The EIS
1: actually stated in the appendix that because of the better mining practices, along with the different quality of coal that comes from the Powder River, would actually be a little bit of a reduction in global CO2 emissions. So that was kind of interesting to me that, not, not that it's just a neutral, it's actually a, a benefit. But nobody's talking about that because they buried it back in the appendix. It's tough. It's Washington's made a made it kind of a tough um, environment currently to try to do business. There's a lot there's a lot of people that feel that way on, on both sides
2: of the political aisle. From twelve different labor unions who are fighting for this project to happen alongside local chamber of commerces To Montana's Attorney General Tim Fox, who doesn't take political or economic stance, only a legal one, that the state of Washington blocking coal from his state and Wyoming violates the United States Constitution and its commerce clause.
3: Think about the way that our country evolved with the thirteen original colonies. They were in competition with one another for commerce, for immigrants. And it was not uncommon for states to basically take advantage of another state's situation by, say, barring the importation of a commodity from the other state in favor of those that maybe grew that commodity in their own state. And the framers were well aware of that and understood that If the states were allowed to do that when the country was eventually established, that it would create chaos, it would be unfair, and it could really undermine this experiment, if you will, that they were trying to do with our republic. And thank goodness they had that kind of foresight and framed the Constitution the way they did so that states like Washington in the year 2018 cannot do what they're trying to do.
1: My new role—it's not a permanent role—but I do enjoy what I do because I got into this to try to make a difference in our community. But I really do miss being out in the field, being able to see something get done at the end of the day. The benefit of uh, being able to go back and say this is this is look at what you did before you walk off the site and say look this is what I did or or turning the switch on and seeing the lights or the the motor startup or whatever it is that you're working on is a pretty satisfying thing to have. Uh, I wish I could do that every day in the job I do now because it's just tough. You might work on something for six months and not see a change because there's all these different pieces that go with it. And then the victories, I guess, in in my line of work now are harder to measure. (laughs) And uh, so we celebrate when we do get anything. And if, um, you know, If we do get a a win with Millennium, we will be celebrating for sure.
0: And great job, as always, Alex. And that's another great installment of our Rule of Law series. And here, there's just unlawfulness. We have 12 unions hoping to build this port facility and all the jobs that come with all those unions supporting it. We have the Chamber of Commerce and unions supporting something, folks. How often does that happen? And those are the kind of stories we do here on Our American Stories, the ones where, well, no one else is covering them. And if you have a story like this in your community or something in the government that makes no sense, that has no relationship to the law, just sheer power or ideology, write to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Union leader Mike Bridges' story, Longview, Washington's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you can imagine, with the extreme nature of the sport, snowboarding, when it started, caught on really fast. Its popularity skyrocketed when a young East Coast college grad made some innovative designs that have lasted to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler to tell us the story of the one, the only, Jake Burton, and the sport it became a worldwide phenomenon.
4: Frontside
1: 12, perfect. That is the run that he needed, and he put it down. And the score is in. It's the return of the king in the men's oh, halfpipe. Sean
5: White takes the goal.
6: Snowboarding is now a well-established sport and has come in leaps and bounds.
5: White is the new
6: gold. With its own culture, superstars, and equipment, competitions and events have become international staples. Snowboarding has evolved into different styles, including alpine racing, freestyle, free riding, backcountry, and more. But where did it all begin?
4: Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro.
6: It began in 1965 with the Snurfer. The Snurfer was invented by a Muskegon, Michigan engineer named Sherman Poppin. This contraption was a monoski, two skis strapped together and ridden with both feet facing forward in the direction in which you are traveling. Like a skateboard or a surfboard, it had no binding. And like a sled, it had a rope attached to the nose to help with the steering. Ironically, skateboarding was birthed in a similar spirit when in the 1950s, kids attached roller skate wheels to small boards that they steered by shifting their weight. Here's Sherman Poppin discussing the birth of his Snurfer.
7: I developed the Snurfer on Christmas Day, uh, 1965, as a toy for my kids. And the motivation was uh, I lived on the shore Lake Michigan and always uh, wished I could surf, but we never really had good waves. Anyway, I had these old Kresge skis and I put them together and we started riding perpendicular to the direction of travel, which is part of the patent. It turned out that it was an absolute blast, and my wife watched us through the window, and she said, you know, that is really a fun thing. And that night, uh, she dreamed up the name Snurfer, which is a contraction of the word snow and surf. It was my dad who was out playing with us in the dunes who put the tether on. He'd fall down and the board would go down the hill. And he said, this is stupid. And I said, I agree. So the tether got on. Two purposes. One, you could just hang on to it so you wouldn't lose the board when you fell off. The other thing was you could sort of pull on it and swing it and literally steer. The motion's exactly the same as riding a, uh, the board today.
6: Poppin patented the Snurfer in 1966. And in February 1968, He began holding snow surfing competitions at a Michigan ski resort every winter that attracted enthusiasts from all over the country. A year after Poppin patented the Snurfer in Cedarhurst, New York, the life of 13-year-old Jake Burton Carpenter started to unravel. Jake's older brother, George, was killed in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. Jake even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. Here's Jake Burton.
8: I mean, I was a wise and when I was young and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school and I went up to see the headmaster who was a headmaster when my father was there and when my brother was there, it was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five minute conversation and then a long drive home, and that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I morning. In
6: 1968, the 14-year-old Burton was one of the thousands of kids who purchased a snurfer for 10 bucks and was hooked. It became such an obsession that the 10 years and 100 prototypes later, Jake Burton Carpenter produced the Burton Backhill, one of the first snowboards he built with his saber saw out of his apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City. As for the name of his board, Jake figured Burton was a better brand name than Carpenter. Fresh out of college with a degree in economics from NYU, Jake traveled with his snowboard creation to Poppin's National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon, Michigan, in 1979. There were protests about Jake entering a non-snurfer board, so a modified open division was created and was won by Jake as the sole entrant. That race was considered the first competition for snowboards and is the start of what we now know as competitive snowboarding. Here's Poppin.
7: When we had our contests, the college kids were, this was sort of like the hula hoop among college kids. They just took it over. Because it would run on one or two, three inches of snow. And there's a little ski area in Michigan north of Grand Rapids called Pando. And Pando let, uh, let us have one offbeat chair for five hours when we run our contests and downhill and slalom. And uh, that's the way it was. And in 1979, 14 years later, uh, Jake showed up at one of our downhill slalom things. And he had snurfers, but he'd put a little piece of inner tube over to slip your sorrel under. That's how it all got started is is, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he and on the East Coast and Tom Sims on the West Coast were developing him at the same time.
6: In an interview with Snowboarder Magazine, Burton paid full respects to his West Coast competition, stating, Without Tom Sims to compete with in every sense and vice versa, snowboarding wouldn't be where it is today. Here's Jake Burton being interviewed in 1980.
9: How'd you get into it? Well, uh, a company called uh, Brunswick Corporation used to make something called a Snurfer a long time ago, and I rode those for about the last 10 years. And Nobody really improved it, and living back east and just sort of getting flustered with that particular board, just decided to start making something on my own. In 1977,
6: when Burton began making his own boards, he thought he would get rich quickly. He opened Burton Boards in Southern Vermont. He had a logo contest and his sister-in-law won five bucks for coming up with the mountain logo that Burton still uses to this very day. Here's what Burton told Inc. Magazine. I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. People were like, a skateboard for the snow? I was a punky kid and my dad, who was always in my corner, said that I never finished anything. That was it. I wanted to prove him wrong. But in the second year of Burton's snowboarding company, things went from bad to worse. Here's Burton.
8: I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time, and I remember once going out with 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. Because one guy had given me two back.
6: Burton decided to stop worrying about immediate profitability and focused instead on cultivating the sport of snowboarding itself. In 1991, he began sponsoring the world's best snowboarders. And like the Steinway Piano Company, who uses the feedback from sponsored pianists to improve their product, Burton demanded honest feedback from his sponsored athletes in order to better his design burton also began marketing his sport to the ski resorts who were almost unanimous in blacklisting the snowboard from its
0: slopes and what an insight by jake burton create demand for your product by inventing an american sport which he did and when we come back more of the story this entrepreneurial story this sports story jake burton's story here on our american stories and to hear all that we do Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week, and it'll be really easy for you to get to the podcast and listen. Again, subscribe to our newsletter. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of Jake Burton's story.
4: Uno dos one two three
0: hey, This is our American stories and we return to the story of Jake Burton. We ended with Burton deciding to put his snowboard product on pause and instead focus on cultivating the sport itself. Here's Greg Hengler with more of the story. Here's
6: Steve Hayes, Burton team rider from 1984 to 1995 and professional snowboarder Tina Basich.
9: One of the, the key things I think um, that um, besides Burton and going from resort to resort and, uh, and working with the marketing managers and general managers of the resorts was um, actually Eastern Edge was one of the, the magazines here that had a, a blacklist and they would put every resort that didn't allow snowboarding on the blacklist. But it was it was different because uh, the group of riders back then were, you know, not necessarily outcasts, but you know, everybody was had their own, you know, col- colorful personality. Whether it was long hair and listening to hardcore rock or whatever, it was it was it was definitely a, a different edge and uh, you weren't doing it um, because you might get uh, a million dollar contract with Burton or one of these other sponsors that are out there. Um, there was no uh, banner patrol and there wasn't a VIP lounge and a rider's lounge and a you know sponsors area. It was all strictly in one room and um, it was a, a group of you know surfers, skateboarders, and snowboarders getting together and, uh, and having this contest.
10: We didn't have edges. we had fins on our boards. Some people weren't riding with high backs. We were inventing our equipment as we went every year tricks were being invented we were crossing stuff over from skateboarding and it was just an exciting time and it will never be like that again
6: here's editor of snowboarder magazine pat bridges
7: skiing and snowboarding in the 80s it was a scary place lawyers ruled the day and introducing something new to that environment was not welcome and he took it upon himself as a challenge and he literally did the legwork, went door-to-door, and sold our sport, you know. Granted, you could question the motivations, be like, yeah, well, he's motivated by money, he wants to grow the sport, this, that, and the other thing. Well, regardless of his motivations, 20 years later, there's 10 million snowboarders in the United States who reap the benefits of that, you know. The
6: daunting task of selling the sport of snowboarding to the ski resort gatekeepers cannot be exaggerated. Here's a news report from 1985, exemplifying the Herculean task Burton was up against.
7: Because they're missiles. They cause, they cause nothing but problems, those things do.
10: This is what all the fuss is about. It's like snow surfing. It's been around for almost a decade in the United States, and now it's becoming the trendy thing to do on our local ski slopes. But the operators of the hills want them off.
7: Uh, The skiers, we try and keep them separated, but the snowboards come down the slopes and they'll go right in between the skiers and we'll kick them off and they'll just lip us off. And they're dangerous because if one of these uh, skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. And most of them have no brakes on them so uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. But
10: where there's a will, there's always a way. Ski Hill operators refuse to let anyone with a snowboard onto the chairlift so they have to hike to the top of the mountain and then find a secluded ski trail where they won't get caught. The ski patrol says it's got its hands full.
8: Quite a, quite a lot of them are uncooperative, smart Alex. You know, you go up and approach them in a very calm, collect manner, and they, they tend to lip you off. You ask them very nicely to leave, that they're endangering the public, and possibly themselves. And they, uh, they swear at you, they tell you to get lost, mind your own business. So it's quite a problem for us, really.
10: you see any compromise in the future at all?
8: No, no. Skiing is becoming more and more popular, and uh, if these boards become more and more popular, it's gonna be more hassles. Um, more confrontation. So we just like to say that we don't want them at all.
6: Contrary to what ski patrol officers said, the ski industry was declining. It would be Jake Burton who would open both the chairlifts to the snowboarding community while simultaneously rescuing a flailing ski industry that was dead set on destroying the sport he founded. One by one, the number of ski resorts blacklisting snowboarders got shorter here again is Steve Hayes and Jake Burton
9: over time marketing managers said you know I believe Killington was one of the last holdouts in Vermont to, to allow snowboarding and Killington marketing manager saw their name on a blacklist and they're like geez we can't have that and actually as the sport started to grow the bottom line was these general managers could not be turning away dollars there was a little bit of slump in the ski industry and uh, This was one answer to fill in some of the voids that those guys were looking for extra revenue.
8: So it was very, you know, it took a while before we got into resorts. And that was clearly a huge, you know, move in terms of growing the whole thing and sort of making it bigger. But it took a long time just to get there.
6: As the sport grew, so did Burton's company. Burton has been one of the world's largest snowboard and snowboarding equipment manufacturers since the late 1980s. And Burton remains the pinnacle of sponsorship for snowboarders. Here's professional snowboarder Trevor Andrew.
8: Oh, Jake is the man. Like, he's one of the realest people, you know. The riders to him, it seems like, have always, he's just considered them family. And he's just, since day one, you know, he's not the typical, like, owner of a huge company like that, that you would expect, you know, he totally is like riding with you and just as stoked as everybody else about it. He's not, he's not all business. He's totally like loves snowboarding and loves the team. And that's just his thing. He's just like, is so into it. And I guess that's what's brought him so much success. You know, it's just because he has genuine love for the, for the sport. He's one of the pioneers.
6: Here's pro snowboarder Keir Dillon.
2: And you hear it all the time, it's, you know, Burton's corporate, and it's crazy to think that, that you're going to call the person that helped pioneer the sport, fought to get it in the mountains, made the R&D, invested so much money to bring it to where it is, you're going to call them corporate. It's like the best-case scenario on the planet, you know? Like, the dude that it pretty much invented the sport, yeah, he's the corporate guy. It means he handled it, and, and you have a dude that cares that much about snowboarding, dictating where it goes. In
6: 1998... Less than a decade after Time magazine called snowboarding the worst new sport, the International Olympic Committee sought it and the youthful audience it promised. Thanks to Burton, snowboarding is now one of the most watched events at the Winter Olympics. Here's professional snowboarder and Olympic gold and silver medalist Hannah Teeter.
7: Three,
10: you know, down to right now. He just wants the best product and that's what we all want you know that's why it's, Burton's like the rider driven company is because they're all about input from us you know they want it to look good but they want it to function more so. At first I was like wow he's the boss like you know but, but he's just like a friend he's just chill and great he's just a down-to-earth guy. It's, it's, it's nice to have a boss like that. <laughs> Not many people get nice bosses but
6: we do. Here's three time Olympic gold medalist Sean White.
2: This is
7: honestly, this is where
2: I like to see Sean backed into a little bit of a corner. Sean, oh my lord!
5: How perfect can you possibly land?
2: I don't know. I've never really felt
9: like it, he was a boss ever. I don't know. It's been one of those things where he's just like, especially, I don't know if, I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just like this really mellow, fun guy. He's like, you know, I think the first thing when we were hanging out, he made some joke about what some woman was wearing, you know what I mean? And I was so blown away by it that I, it caught me so off guard. I'm like, this guy rules. Like, he's all time.
6: <laughs> Much has progressed since Burton initiated improvements to the Snurfer, but the raw authenticity that formed the heart of the sport still remains. Here's Burton.
8: Nobody's stopping Snowboarders are, you know, from looking like NASCAR drivers, you know, and putting patches all over them and selling their, you know, themselves to everybody. I mean, that's not what people want to see. And that's kind of good. I mean, there is this sort of sense of couth that's associated with, I think, all board sports that we don't want to lose. And I think that um, that might keep things down a little bit, a little bit smaller. Hopefully, it'll just sort of keep it seen.
6: During his long tenure as one of snowboarding's true patriarchs, Jake's net worth is upwards of $100 million. Ten years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts even allowed snowboarding. But today, it's hard to find one that doesn't. Burton's Burlington, Vermont company, which he co-owns with his wife, Donna, remains the industry leader with five international offices and 845 employees. Not even Burton himself could have predicted this much success.
8: I, I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw sport, but I did not see Shawn White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice or snowboarding being in the Olympics or um, the stuff that's happened. And it's been the athletes that have made it happen and we've facilitated it, but it's been uh, exceeded Um, I wouldn't even say dreams, because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now.
0: I'm Greg Hengler,
6: and this is Our American Stories.
0: And what a great story. We're smiling here in the studio, we're beaming, because half the people who were quoted here sounded like they were stoners. But they started something new here in this country, a new sport, a new way of life, and they said no to the people in power. They challenged everybody from the owners of these resorts to Time Magazine itself, who said it was the worst new sport. Jake Burton's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, give us your email address, and we'll send you the five best segments a week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and you're about to hear a great one. One of our favorites, we play it every year on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration. These Puritan separatists, or Pilgrim Fathers, carried with them aboard the Mayflower in 1620 what they considered their most precious cargo, copies of the Geneva Bible. On this National Bible Week, which was first declared by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1941, there is no better way to honor this national day than with the story of the Pilgrims. What you're about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today.
6: They want to hear a Thanksgiving song. All right.
2: All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy. It. Turkey lurky do and turkey
6: lurky dap. I eat that turkey then I take a nap.
4: Thanksgiving
9: is a special
10: night, oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving.
7: Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.
11: Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting, family, and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the new world? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may
4: truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root.
11: As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire,
9: England. Then said the Lord,
4: I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto God, the simple truth in all things, double vengeance unto them who at least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain.
11: That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the new world is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel.
10: Oh, Father, art in heaven,
7: hallowed be thy.
11: He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old
5: that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person
11: who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith.
9: And without a prince,
11: two men become his mentors.
4: This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years.
9: And without terrifying.
4: Mr. Brewster, a reverend man, like a father to me, became an elder of our church.
9: Love a woman beloved
4: of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the
11: Lord their
7: God.
11: One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University.
12: The old church had Power, because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century.
11: But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail, for not attending the Church of England, and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in
12: people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit.
0: And when we come back, more of the Thanksgiving story. It's National Bible Week, all week, here On Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. More with this great Thanksgiving story after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the celebration of Thanksgiving and the story of Thanksgiving. Let's pick up where we last left off, British officials, for failing to practice their government sponsored Anglican religion, are invading the pilgrim separatist homes.
11: Here we go. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can
12: never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a Church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims
11: decide to run away, to leave England in en masse to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam Holland which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500 plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, Another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again would you want to go?
4: most are content with their labors here we labor only as god wishes yet some prefer and choose the prisons in england rather than liberty in holland with these afflictions faith if some better and easier place could be found it could draw many and take away these discouragements and where would we go where could we go what's of america there are vast and unpeopled countries in america which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled.
9: There are no men; there but only savages who
5: This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying
11: at a frightening rate every year the pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made they use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be
5: a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the new world.
4: About fifty-five Pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company.
11: The Pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was
5: a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak bowed square-rigged, with high castle-like structures, fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation
11: of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows we refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice and indeed it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard and then with mutual embraces and tears they took their leaves one of the other which proved to be the last leave to many of them after three years of planning and preparation two ships The Speedwell and the Mayflower are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers,
5: they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire.
11: The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the Pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after, the Speedwell has trouble. The master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We
4: had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended.
11: Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they
5: retrace their steps all the way back to England?
11: The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speed well. It's early September. This is
5: not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out.
11: William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes,
4: It was judged that the Speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone.
11: On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many
5: more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were, ultimately, 102 passengers on on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. (laughs) Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower, was between
4: 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us.
0: And when we come back, we continue with our Thanksgiving celebration, the story of Thanksgiving. And all week long, we're celebrating National Bible Week. And we thank, as always, our sponsors, the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education, working hard to promote Bible literacy across this great country, and teaching the Bible in our schools, because not understanding the Bible, well, it's not to understand Western civilization and America itself. More on the story of Thanksgiving after these messages. This is Our American Stories. To the celebration of thanksgiving and the story of thanksgiving and we pick up with the pilgrims sailing across the atlantic on board the mayflower with captain jones and his crew of delinquents the rough and tumble
11: crew do not take their cues from their kind captain bradford writes Yet, according
4: to the usual manner many were afflicted with seasickness What a lot of dribbling cock queens. A bloody psalm-singing, God-fearing puke stock and bean farmer going to America. (laughs)
9: See that quail, little kicksie-wixies.
4: One of the seamen of a losty able-body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. Into the bucket, girl! worse than the others.
11: The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket,
5: and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck of people probably miss so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come and that is miserable You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it.
10: One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration
2: and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure.
5: The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer, primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it.
2: I'm going to see the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to you know rather a lot of beer.
11: The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims, is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily
4: curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him.
11: The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones.
0: I
4: Land!
11: But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination.
12: Muskets first. dry.
11: On Friday, December 16th, 1620 the mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore everything was wrong i mean they had to reach the shore by wading through ice cold water to the
4: shoreline And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard
11: we were as if we had been glazed. And
7: they caught cold and they died.
11: In the harsh winter ahead, half of them died. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. But the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder in january and
4: february sometimes two and three died in a day bradford calls it the heart of winter it's just a very grim
11: time the biggest toll the most painful toll was by march 13 of the 18 wives die they die keeping their children alive all seven daughters live and 10 of the 13 sons live Somehow they keep their hopes up, by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday, it's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak, they are still fearful, when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian, coming. Coming. Indian, Indian, coming. Indian, coming. Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! Welcome. The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is... Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish and learns to pray every day and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character He gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the Pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the Pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections,
4: as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's it's worth feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of
11: God for our good. Guanto
0: never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. And when we return, the final chapter of this hour-long celebration, this hour-long story of Thanksgiving, again, brought to us by the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education, more of the story of Thanksgiving on National Bible Week, here on Our American Story. final segment in this hour long celebration this hour long story of thanksgiving and again we're celebrating national bible week all week long and the pilgrims are back on their feet thanks to Squanto who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with the neighboring indian tribe that he's been living with let's return to the story On October
11: of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance
4: was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together.
7: lad, Francis.
5: They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast.
12: It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian
11: chief Massasoit arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first thanksgiving prayer is said. O Lord,
4: hear us, Lord. How few weak and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, Thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us
7: these allies.
11: The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in
9: them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair. It's a male-dominated affair more than anything else.
5: They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength.
4: Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massa men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others.
5: One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks
4: of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating in native society that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's
9: probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise.
11: William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford though uncertain of the colony he founded was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage.
12: Abel, Enoch, Noah Abraham, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them and embracing them and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one, wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God, and he hath prepared for them a city. The
11: pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory.
10: We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief and this abundance that is a relief from that loss But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance.
7: Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays.
11: And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving... The Spikiatich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss.
7: Here we have gravy yeah. oh, yeah. and the mashed potatoes.
0: Sure, after I pass the gravy. Okay, we've got sweet potatoes.
10: It's truly an american holiday to me I and mean, this is our holiday nobody else has it like we do the people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for this is our american holiday
7: from atlantic to pacific Gee, the traffic is terrific oh, today
12: in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at the time and the holidays such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. the pilgrims stood for piety, they stood for patriotism they knew where they stood we don 't so we look back and we see Thanksgiving is the time where everybody is in golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television everything's wonderful and it just fits very well
10: Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today I think that people are conscious of that the fact that they have food on the table that the fact that they can gather together that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this.
11: What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar.
0: And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler for producing and putting together this great story. And as always, these Bible features, like our Constitution Week celebration, are brought to us by the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education. And by the way, they're dedicated to promoting Bible literacy across this country. Their book the Bible and its influence is in 650 public school systems across this country, in many of the states, a majority of the states. And their new curriculum, Wisdom Literature from the Bible, is just terrific and is a resource that's available to school teachers everywhere. And to learn more about what Essentials in Education is up to, go to TeachTheBibleInSchools.org. That's TeachTheBibleInSchools.org. And again, Not as a religious exercise, folks, but simply to understand the impact of the Bible on the world, on Western literature, art, and everything else we know. The Thanksgiving Story, here on Our American Story, celebrating National Bible Week.